This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is A People's Guide to Capitalism, An Introduction to Marxist Economics by Hadas Ter. Economists regularly promote capitalism as the greatest system ever to grace the planet. In the same breath, they implore us to leave the job of understanding the magical powers of the market to the experts. Despite the efforts of these mainstream commentators to convince us otherwise, many of us have begun to question why this system has produced such vast inequality and wanton disregard for its own environmental destruction. This book offers answers to exactly these questions on their own terms, in the form of a radical economic theory. As Kianga Yamada Taylor says of the book, quote, erudite and sharp, Tier unpacks the mystery of capitalist inequality with lucid and accessible prose. As we all enter into a world of new realities, we will need books like A People's Guide to help us make sense of the root causes of the financial crises that shape so many of our struggles today. A People's Guide to Capitalism, an Introduction to Marxist Economics, by Hadis Tier, out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The struggle against racist violence has defined this year as it has defined much of the Black freedom struggle, all the way back to the NAACP's foundation in 1909. The NAACP's remarkable fight against lynching in the first two decades of the organization's existence is what I'm talking about today with my guest, political scientist Megan Ming Francis. Building on the anti-lynching campaign led by Ida B. Wells, the NAACP believed that ending rampant lynchings and white racist massacres was the precondition for black progress across the board, including for black worker organizing so often met with brutality. The popularly remembered history of black struggle in this country, Francis notes, typically begins with slavery and reconstruction, only to suddenly reemerge with the rise of the Southern Civil Rights Movement, passing over the entire period between 1877 and the 1950s, a period that included widespread government-condoned violence against black people and organized black political struggle under the bleakest political conditions to put an end to it. Today, we remember the NAACP as having focused on school desegregation and voting rights, and pursuing those objectives through the courts. But the NAACP was, in its early years, committed to prioritizing the fight against racist violence. And Francis discovered in the archives that the organization only turned to education and to the fight that would lead to Brown v. Board under heavy pressure from their major funder, the Garland Fund. The NAACP's turn to the courts, likewise, was not inevitable, and it has a history. The NAACP tried multiple methods, trying to figure out how to protect black lives at a moment when doing so seemed so impossible. First, the NAACP tried to change white hearts and minds, changing some but finding that it accomplished little. 
They lobbied Democratic President Woodrow Wilson and Republican Warren G. Harding, successfully persuading both to denounce racist violence. But presidential statements were woefully insufficient. They organized a massive campaign and lobbying effort that, in 1922, remarkably succeeded in pushing the House of Representatives to pass an anti-lynching bill, only to see it die in the Senate. Finally, in 1923, the NAACP won Moore v. Dempsey, a landmark Supreme Court case that found court proceedings conducted under the threat of a hostile white mob to be in violation of the 14th Amendment. In doing so, Moore for the first time put state courts under the oversight of federal courts, laying the groundwork for the procedural rights revolution that would later transform the American criminal justice system. Social movement strategies that in retrospect seem inevitable were in fact always works in progress, always experimental. It was the NAACP's trial and error experience of organizing for black freedom in a political context where such freedom seemed so out of reach that led the organization to take to the courts in Moore v. Dempsey, defending black sharecroppers in Phillips County, Arkansas, whose efforts to organize were met with what is now recorded as the most lethal mass lynching of black people in U.S. history. The consequences of this early civil rights history that Francis explores. History made by black organizers in conditions that were certainly not of their own choosing were profoundly consequential. This is a history that we must look back to to ask some important questions. What does the reliance on courts for the protection of individual due process rights mean in retrospect, given that the securing of individual procedural rights was followed by the courts presiding over the rise of mass incarceration? Or what might a civil rights movement that had remained focused on black violence and labor rights rather than voting in education have looked like and meant for 20th century American history? Francis's book, Civil Rights and the Making of the Modern American State, examines an oft-forgotten moment of U.S. history. It provides important context and poses complex questions as the defense of black lives has once again returned to the center of our politics. Before we get started, this podcast is only available to you and to everyone, regardless of your ability to pay, because those of you who can afford to contribute do so at patreon.com slash the dig. If you have not contributed yet, please contribute what you can now, if you can. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. I would also like to encourage you to join a dig book club to discuss the books discussed on the dig with fellow listeners and then to meet with their authors on Zoom. If you are interested, visit thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. The next book club book coming up soon is Wendy Brown's In the Ruins of Neoliberalism. So read the book and meet Wendy Brown. That is thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. Okay, here's Megan Ming Francis, a professor in the departments of political science and law, societies and justice at the University of Washington and the author of Civil Rights in the Making of the Modern American State. She specializes in the study of American politics with broad interests in constitutional law, black political activism, critical philanthropy, 
and the post-Civil War South. Megan Ming Francis, welcome to The Dig. Thanks, it's good to be here. The NAACP was founded in 1909 in large part in response to white mob violence against black people, specifically or most proximately the 1908 race riot in Springfield, Illinois. You write, quote, shockwaves reverberated throughout the nation that such violence could occur in the North. It was a jarring reminder that mob violence was a national rather than a sectional problem. And this in, in Abraham Lincoln's home city, no less. To start off, describe the just massive scope and terrible brutality of white mob violence, both both in the South and beyond, that black people confronted in the early 20th century? Because I truly, after reading your book, don't think many people understand it. Yeah, so I think and for me also it was a bit surprising. Um, as somebody who was trained in black politics, I think a, a lot of the way that people tend to understand the struggle for black people in this country tends to be kind of, there's, there's these different moments, right, that a lot of people now understand or know a bit about the period of enslavement. And then there's this period of reconstruction that happens in the aftermath of the Civil War. And then, of course, the heyday of civil rights activism in the late 50s, 60s and 70s. But there's this like much earlier period that really there's just not that much attention on. And so for me, once I, in graduate school, I had decided that I wanted to focus on the Black freedom struggle. And I actually set out <laughs> to write a book um, about the NAACP in the 1950s, in the 1960s. Um, and this is just a... Con- about Brown v. Board and whatnot. About Brown v. Board, exactly. And so I went into the archives, the National Library of Congress. I asked for the NAACP archives. And because I didn't know any better, Dan, I started at the very beginning, which was 1909. (laughs) (laughs) And I just started reading. And I was like, whoa, like what what was and I started with the board of director meeting minutes and what wasn't what unfolded before me as I was reading through these minutes, as I was hearing like the words of W.B. Du Bois was that like the NAACP in, in at least its first two decades of the organization's existence was really concerned about mob violence and lynchings. And so then that then set me on another path to try to understand um, the significance and the role of mob violence and lynchings to the formation of Black political struggle in this early early period. And what really emerges, right? So like, I mean, the NAACP begins in 1909, but to understand, I always feel like formation of the NAACP means to understand the work of Ida B. Wells at the end of the 19th century. Because as we come out of the period of Reconstruction, it's not just that like, that Reconstruction ends and that like, Black people in the South are silent and they're working as sharecroppers is that they are organizing. But also there's incredible white violence, mob violence, white militias, lynchings um, that happen to so-called keep black people in their place um, and to try to force them into these terrible um, sharecropping labor arrangements to try to keep them on and working in the agriculture sector, which then, of course, leads to the Great Migration um, in the early and mid 20th century. And so one of the things that I feel like many people do not understand about the, the early 20th century is the structuring role of racial violence in American politics, as well as the structuring role of racial violence to Black political struggle and the formation of strategies. The way the NAACP understood the fight 
for, for justice, for equality, for Black people in the early part of the 20th century. And the way, it wasn't just the NAACP. It was <laughs> most Black people in this country. In the North, as well as the South, it's a struggle that had to center first on the fight to protect Black lives from mob violence and lynchings from white vigilantes, as well as by from white political actors and the state. And so that for me, I'm, oh, I'm always kind of like talking about like that ha- has to be in terms of the way that we think about the fight for rights. And there's this exchange that happens in 1916 where they're at the NAACP, the board minutes um, at a board meeting, one of the NAACP uh, board members, white, um, she asked, why are we not going after other areas um, of rights making, such as, you know, that we now today associate with civil rights, such as housing segregation and voting. And one of the black members of the NAACP's board responds, and this is a quote, all the American Negro wants is a chance to live without a rope around his neck, end quote. And this is the idea that before we could fight on these other rights, that we actually had to fight on this because black people needed to live first. Lynching wasn't just murder. It was the most brutal torture imaginable as a public spectacle. And it and it wasn't just lynching either. It was also these white riots and massacres, really pogroms of sorts against black people in cities all over the country from from East St. Louis to, to Tulsa. Can you put these various forms of violence in, in, in context and how they related to each other and varied across the country? Yeah. So across the country in the South, as well as the North, um, there are different forms of racial violence. So the ones that I focus on in my work, especially around the NAACP struggle and what they were fighting against, were lynchings, individual lynchings of Black people. Also in terms of sometimes, especially if we think about um, the lynching in which Ida B. Wells got activated, it's going to be the lynching of her three friends in a railroad yard. And these would be brutal, terrible lynchings that would then send a message to Black people in a certain neighborhood and or in a certain community. It was also the case that you had these terrible, terrible mob violence and what what some refer to as race riots, but depending on the place as well as actually what happened, I think it's probably more accurate to refer to some of what history historians refer to as race riots as actually race rebellions or race revolts. And sometimes even as I have referred to and others have the St. Lu- the East St. Louis massacre in 1917 as a race massacre. Um, In the St. Louis massacre of 1917, this was, we had individuals who went to the Black neighborhood and basically set Black homes on fire. So it was either burn inside or come out and face um, a white firing squad. And this was was to send a message to Black people um, in East St. Louis at that time, as there was labor competition between white workers and Black people who had moved um, to East St. Louis from the South. And so what you had, and again, it's really important, I think, for me to underscore this point, that in the early 20th century, it's not just in the South where you have incredible displays of racial violence, lynchings, as well as these kind of like race massacres, race revolts and rebellions. But this is also occurring in the North, maybe not in terms of the volume, but it is happening in the North as well. Now that we've set some of the the context of the the scope of the violence against Black people at the time, let's talk about the origins of the anti-lynching movement with, with Ida B. Wells, a Black woman who lived in Memphis and edited the free speech newspaper there. As you referred to earlier, 
in 1892, a white mob lynched three of her close friends for the crime of operating or for opening a black-owned people's grocery company across the street from an established white store. Who was Wells, and how was it that this brutal racist murder of her friends led her to launch a historic crusade against lynching? Yeah, so Ida B. Wells is somebody who I think does not get enough attention in the way that we understand heroes um, in American politics um, and understand the leaders in the civil rights movement in this country. She is somebody who is incredible. And I actually never talk about, and I don't think it's possible to talk about the NAACP and civil rights organizations in the 20th century without talking about her incredible work. Um, So in 1892, as you mentioned, um, three of her friends had opened up this grocery store called the People's Grocery Store. And this is the idea, right, that there is this white grocery store in the black area of town and black people are not treated as as full citizens at this grocery store, even though they are spending money at this grocery store. Um, So three black people then open up this black grocery store across the street. And this, again, is going to violate a type of racial code at that time. And so what then happens um, is that these three, three of her friends are waking up, woken up at night by white vigilantes, law enforcement. They are taken, they are thrown in jail. Um, It is then the case that then a mob comes uh, to the jail. They then take three of Ida B. Wells' friends from the jail. They lynch them brutally lynch them in a railroad yard, shoot through their their bodies, and they hang the bodies in the Black section of town as a sign, right, as a symbol to not step up, to not step beyond their place in life. And so what happens after this is that, I mean, at, at the time in 1892, the, the stated reason for why lynchings happened, it was because Black people had done something wrong that it was t- a type of kind of vigilante justice. But Wells at that moment knew that nothing had been, that her three friends did nothing wrong. Um, so she wrote um, about this lynching of her three friends. She also very quickly afterwards conducted investigations of other lynchings that happened previously before her three friends were lynched and afterwards and wrote up those stories. And it provided a type of kind of like what we think of as advocacy journalism and expose um, into the brutality of the white power structure um, in Memphis at that time. Now, of course, after writing up these exposés, there were threats on her life, and then she had to flee, um, and she had to leave Memphis after that. But her work is really important in what we, like, kind of, I feel like a lot of people have returned to in the current moment, um, which is a type of knowledge production that happens, um, that the facts about the death of Black people and the violence endured by Black communities was not being collected, right, by the mainstream press. And it was being, like, the stories about white violence were being shoved underneath the rug. Um, And so she shined a a tremendous and important light on it. And I think in terms of her incredible anti-lynching crusade, what's been interesting to me in this moment, it's been kind of resurrected for popular consumption. But we hear, I think, little today of her critique of capitalism and how she linked 
um, economic exploitation to racial violence. Um, a history of lynchings and counter-mobilization to protect the lives of Black people must remember, and this was also her work, especially in the aftermath of her three friends being lynched, but must remember the linkages between economic exploitation and racial violence. According to Wells, and, and this is part of what she wrote, is that the logic of lynching was not criminal. It was not always, but often economic, that lynching and mob violence were tactics of economic subordination used to protect white economic power, to extinguish Black economic advancement, and to ensure a captive Black labor force. And so that's what I think is like really interesting about her work. And so her work in terms of exposing and laying bare the violence of white towns and cities and states was instrumental to what will then, of course, be uh, the beginnings of the NAACP and other Black organizations in the early 20th century. And Wells also transformed Black politics, you write, both by fostering a more militant Black consciousness and also relatedly exposing the conservative Black accommodationist politics embodied by Booker T. Washington as just woefully insufficient to the task of confronting a remorselessly violent and oppressive white supremacist system. What was the status of Washington's politics around the turn of the 20th century and how did Wells's anti-lynching campaign contribute to hastening its decline in favor of a more assertive civil rights politics? So at this time, and again, it's really important at the end of the at the end of the 19th through the 20th, and then obviously clearly in the 21st century to understand the role of racial violence in this country, that that is the, the greatest impediment to justice rights for Black people in this country. What is clear that at the kind of the end of the 19th, early 20th century, that Washington, Booker T. Washington, focused on a type of kind of gradualist politics, right? That one of the perhaps famous phrases that is often used is kind of could be encapsulated and cast down your bucket where you are. A belief that if Black people worked hard um, and proved themselves as worthy citizens to white people, they would be treated as such. And this was, again, kind of what many people have attributed to him a sense of accommodationist type of politics. The formation of the Tuskegee Institute, um, training Black people in different types of trades. And this was a belief, again, that if we worked really hard, that if you proved yourself, um, that you couldn't demand too much. And that especially in terms of the, the specter of racial violence that Black people endured at the time, to not speak too loudly What's interesting and that I don't think that he gets enough credit for is that Washington was aware of mob violence and, lynch and lynchings, but chose not to speak out about it until much later, after after Wells, after Du Bois, after other after many black leaders at that time. Um, what's interesting, though, is that he quietly funded some efforts that focused on organizing around lynching and mob violence. What Wells did is that she right, she was this black woman at that time, so kind of violated different types of or, or standard um, expectations for how she should behave as a woman and also how should she she should behave as a black person. She didn't hold back. She was somebody right that believed that you had to speak truth, that this was something that in terms of the, the issue around lynchings and mob violence had to be addressed. And this is she's going to travel across the country. She's going to travel also to the UK to like raise support and raise this issue, that this is something that needed to be focused on. It's not just in terms of that Black people needed to be educated and work really hard, is that we also had to decrease the violent power of the state 
and of people who were trying to take advantage of Black people at the time. You write, quote, Washington, the most prominent and well-funded African-American man in America, was reluctant to speak out against lynching. A significant attack on lynching would require Washington to address the caste system in the South. And you write that indeed he once said, quote, the men who are lynched are invariably vagrants, men without property or standing. It seems notable that he that he said that the, that the men who are lynched are invariably vagrants, men without property, suggesting basically that those black people in the South who heeded his program would not be subject to this white violence. Oh, I definitely think that's true. I think that there is this sense of, and I think that follows through to contemporary black politics, right? That is like, if you, if you follow a certain agenda, if you follow a certain plan, if you talk a certain way, if you go to the right schools, if you get a certain type of education and pursue a certain type of job, right? That you can not perhaps be free of all of kind of, of, white supremacy, of the violence of racism in, in this country, but but it will protect you, right? This idea that like, like pulling your pants up, wearing, wearing a tie, following a politics of respectability can provide some type of shelter for Black people. And there was this sense, right, that in terms of like working really hard, doing things the right way could protect certain people from harm and that other people, the, the, the individuals that were lynched the individuals that faced mob violence, those were people that did not follow a specific, let's say, program or agenda of respectability. And and obviously in terms of like where uh, this fissure is between Du Bois as well as Wells and especially Wells is that it didn't matter, right? Her thing is it didn't matter if you actually had wealth and you were black, it didn't matter um, what you wore, it didn't matter the type of education and training that one actually had that this is the way that the white state operated and we needed to critique it and we needed to undermine and tear that apart. One of Wells's core priorities was exposing as a lie this widely accepted notion that lynching was a punishment for rape committed by black men. Why was it that white violence operated through the criminalization of black male sexuality and this fear over, obsessive fear over miscegenation so much of the mythology around lynching of Black people and the justifications around the lynching of Black people that occurred after the Civil War through Reconstruction and obviously after Reconstruction really centers on this threat of, this, of the Black man, the criminalization of Black men and how they would come for white women and white girls. And there was this whole mythology and propaganda around the rape of white women by Black men at the time. And there was this sense of, in terms of that, what was needed, that lynching and mob violence was needed to protect white women and to, and to make sure that Black men knew their place, that there was this innate criminality in Black men at the time. What, what, what Wells does through her activism and work is to say that no, right? That like the, the very fact that three of her friends who were grocery store owners were lynched and she knew that these three friends of hers did not rape anybody. She was very aware that they were lynched because they had, they had the audacity to actually think that they could own a business and compete 
right, that they could actually compete with this other white grocery store owner. And so what she showed through her investigations at the time is that, no, that lynchings don't happen um, because Black men rape or prey on white women. They actually happen, um, that that's a type of kind of a smoking mirrors, um, that actually the reason why lynchings happen is a more sinister reason to keep Black people in their place, whether sometimes it's around, as in the case around the People's Grocery Company, um, sometimes it's a focus on economic competition. And other times, um, she also pointed to um, the lynching of Black women that happened and the lynching of young people that happened, that it was a, that it was a tool of white supremacy to keep Black people, not just Black men, but also Black women in their place. And you write that this this myth of lynching as punishment for rape, it was widely accepted in newspapers nationwide. What does that reveal about the national consensus on, on race at that time, that Southern white supremacist myths, myths that Wells really, you know, proved to be totally false using, you know, data and, and reporting, that they're so readily accept they were so readily accepted by newspapers all over the place? Oh, yeah. This is one of the most amazing things to me. I have a I do a content analysis of, main, of so-called mainstream newspapers at the time, right? New York Times, um, LA Times, as well as Black newspapers at the time. And it's so fascinating to me how white newspapers outside of the South, right, on the West Coast, on the East Coast, pick up these narratives and really sink their teeth into these narratives about Black criminality. Um, and there is a sense of, and again, this is not just in the South, but this is also in the North. There is a sense that Black people are criminal and they are coming for us. Um, and the the New York Times reprints sometimes just stories verbatim as told to them by white politicians and white law enforcement officers. And so what Wells does is an incredible work of exploding that myth, but there is still so much kind of counter work that her as well as other black journalists are doing at that time, um, in part because the media is is at that time so powerful in setting expectations as well as shaping public opinion. Now that we've discussed the anti-lynching lynching movement's origins, let's turn to where the NAACP picks it up, starting with the founding of the NAACP. The group begins after a white advocate for black rights, Oswald Garrison Villard, who was president of the New York Evening Post and grandson of the legendary white abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, when he issued what was known as Lincoln's Birthday Call on February 12, 1909. It was a statement signed by a large number of prominent white and black figures, including Ida B. Wells and Du Bois. That call, in turn, leads to the formation of the National Negro Committee, which then leads to the creation of the NAACP. But you write that black radicals like Ida B. Wells and Monroe Trotter were excluded from the organization's leadership, a leadership that, at the beginning at least, was heavily white. You write, quote, the formation of the NAACP allowed it to offer America a new vision of a race organization, one that did not include its most conservative and radical elements. Why did the NAACP take this path and exclude radicals? And what, what were the ultimate consequences of that? those exclusions if you would indulge in a bit of counterfactual imagination? Right. So I think for me, one of the interesting aspects about the formation of the NAACP and I think about of, of this time is this is, a, this is an exciting time of civil rights making, 
and nothing is certain, right? That there's, there's no like federal guarantees that protect black, black people's rights at this time. And that African Americans are trying to figure out how to form an organization and also how to imagine an agenda to a different world, to a world in which they can actually, are actually treated as full citizens. And what occurs at this time is that, right, this, this Springfield lynching as you mentioned, and then there was this call. And then in 1909, the National Negro Committee is formed. And it's a small group to discuss the problems of mob violence and lynchings in this country. And then there is a lot of conversation about if this organization is going to be, as they see themselves, they're going to be the organization. It's going to be a multiracial organization that is really going to fight and strategize about the protection of Black lives from lynching and mob violence and obviously other rights as well. This is going to be kind of the premier organization to fight for Black people. Du Bois is a big voice in the formation and in the early thinkings about the NW, about the formation of the NAACP. And it's clear, I mean, <laughs> this also gets into... I believe that people change over time, but at this time, W.B. Du Bois had some issues around gender. And it's clear that him and Ida B. Wells locked heads. Um, and there was some friction between Ida B. Wells. One of the things that we love about her and that we celebrate is she is someone that did not hold her tongue. She spoke truth to power in so many ways. Right. That she was not going to in terms of make herself small for any man. I think that was a bit surprising to somebody like Du Bois, who was by many people at this time seen as the and the kind of the figure, the leader of a type of black program that was a bit more radical than a Washington, Booker T. Washington type of accommodationist and or gradualist program. Um, and it's clear that kind of like, but in the tension perhaps between Washington and Du Bois, that this was a group that really wanted to focus on more of a Du Boisian vision of what rights making might actually look like. And so within that, it's my understanding that Du Bois had a lot of input and a lot of say into what, what would be the eventual formation of the NAACP at this time, right? Because what you miss, though, is Ida B. Wells in all her genius, right? In all, in, in terms of, in her fight, and Monroe Trotter not being a part of the, of the NAACP um, at that time. Now, for me, one of the things in terms of what I think that we lose from that um, is especially in terms of the early NAACP in the first decade, more of a type of kind of activist focus that perhaps combined work on the ground with more, more work inside of political institutions, as well as sounding the alarm, which Ida B. Wells was doing, and less accommodation and less gradualism, even with inside of the NAACP's own strategies. It also is clear, um, at least in the early stages, before James Weldon Johnson comes on board in 1916, that the NAACP's board at the beginning is all white, with the exception, <laughs> with the exception of Du Bois, right? Like, oftentimes people say that Ida B. Wells is one of the first members of the NAACP, and so technically, technically, that's not true. 
that she was on this initial call. But when the NAACP is formed in 1909, she is actually not on um, kind of that initial NAACP committee. And, the and reason, not by accident. Yeah, not by accident. And the reason why I, I like to highlight that is because I think that there's so much that is washed over at this early time, in this earlier time. But I think it's really what this obviously highlights is what will happen later on. But this tension around sidelining Black women in the kind of the larger struggle for civil rights in this country. And you see that early on. The NAACP nonetheless followed in Wells' footsteps in so many ways, including with, at first, a massive public education operation to teach white people about the reality of lynching because they believed, quote, lynching can be stopped when we reach the heart and conscience of the American people. But you write, quote, the NAACP began to realize lynchings and mob violence were occurring not because of whites who held ill-informed racial beliefs, but because local and state governments condoned the violent spectacle. Explain the NAACP's initial approach. What successes did they have, and to what extent did they discover limits to a strategy of changing Black conditions by changing white ideas? Yeah, so this is one of the things that I... I spent a long time, Dan, really trying to understand because looking back today with the benefit of retrospect, right, (laughs) with our understanding of the history of the Black freedom struggle in this country, it seems impossible (laughs) that the NAACP could conceive of a right struggle that they could end or at least significantly reduce lynchings and mob violence through a public opinion campaign, through public education. But like... And, and But no matter how I read and I dug into the archives of individual NAACP board members, as well as the NAACP as an organization in this early, earlier period, they truly believed, right, that if you could change white minds, if you could raise their awareness, that if you could educate them about what was going on, about the real reasons why Black people were facing mob violence and were being lynched, then like they would change and they would come out in full force and lynchings and mob violence would end. This is the ideology of racial liberalism that was dominant amongst anti-racists for the first half of the 20th century. Absolutely. That like what you could do is you could educate people and that they could change. Um, but the, and the NAACP realized that, yes, <laughs> right, that they could change some people. That some people's hearts and minds could change. This is a battle for the hearts and minds termed by Du Bois, I think, at one point. Um, that you could change some people and you could educate some, some people. And some people would want to do something. And some people would know better and not care. It wasn't really fully about a fight in the hearts and minds of people. It also needed to be about a fight through political and legal institutions that made all the violence actually possible and that greenlighted the violence, right? That it was the institutional setting that actually then kind of produced and nurtured this violence. The NAACP's first big public relations fight was launched in response to the 1915 release of the film Birth of a Nation, which drew huge audiences to its just grotesquely racist portrayal of honorable Southern white men valiantly and violently protecting white women from black men. What role did this film's high profile and success play in American race politics at the time? And how did it shape the how the NAACP 
approached its work? So I think Birth of a Nation and the launch of it is really going to be marks a change in at least the NAACP's public education campaign around lynching. Um, they viewed this as very dangerous propaganda. Um, they saw this as, in so many ways, greenlighting lynchings, as undermining so much of the work that had been done before them by by somebody like Ida B. Wells and also done through the NAACP in terms of their activism and through Du Bois's newspaper or pamphlet, The Crisis. And so what they did, and the reason why I think that this, the birth of a nation marks an important moment in the NAACP's public ed- education campaign is that they really get out, they, they see this as a threat and they organize around it. And there is mass demonstrations across the country in front of movie theaters. They are writing letters to President Wilson um, at the time and others wanting to stop its release, wanting to stop its showing. And what you get there and what you get as a result of kind of these mass demonstrations is a sense of the power of Black people en masse to, to like go to the streets and protest. Now, they don't get the stoppage, right? Like they don't Birth of a Nation is celebrated (laughs) in so many corners of white America. But what you get, though, from Birth of a Nation is a sense of the power of protest um, in combination with the type of public education strategies. A key tool for the NAACP, as you just referenced, was its newspaper, The Crisis, which was edited by Du Bois. And it was a platform that he used to write scathing denunciation of Black people's oppression and, and the violence Black people faced. What was Du Bois's approach as a political journalist at this point in his long and varied career? What impacted him being the NAACP's leading public voice have on the organization? So he was. Tre- it was tremendous. The crisis was like his baby. He he was like, I'm. I'll I'll come on board in, to the NAACP, but I really want. A newspaper, the NAACP needs to have a voice and we need to have a voice through newspaper and I need to be at the helm. And he saw the crisis. The crisis was advocacy journalism. It was a militant newspaper and sometimes uh, state authorities tried to ban it as they did try in Mississippi and in Alabama. But he saw this as a crucial way to get out the stories about Black people in terms of to raise awareness about certain issues, raise awareness about racial violence, to raise awareness about voting, about labor, but also to celebrate the successes of Black people through the newspaper as a type of kind of counter to what people had read in so-called mainstream journalism. He also, and this is, I think, what is extraordinary component in terms of his use of the crisis, he understood his work through the crisis, the kind of the larger work of the NAACP around mob violence and lynchings as problematizing the issue of, lynch, of the lynchings and mob violence for white people who would read the crisis. And one of the things that I think is extraordinary about what he does, and it's a decision that he makes, is that he problematizes lynchings of Black people through the use of photos. And through the crisis, he skillfully used photos to create a different frame from which to interpret lynchings. Um, Whereas photos of lynchings had been used, as we know from historians, by whites to celebrate the carrying out of vigilante justice. The crisis um, used photographs to expose that myth and convey the sheer injustice of the spectacle. 
It was one thing to read stories about Black innocence and another to view the consequences of white vigilante violence through the use of photos. Really graphic photos, some of which are reproduced in your book. They're really horrible. Yeah. And so like the first time that he uses the the use of multiple photos was the lynching of Jesse Washington. And this is a terrible, terrible lynching um, that happened in Waco. Yeah. In Waco, Texas in 1916. It wasn't the entire town, but it was the majority of the people in town, right? That it was uh, law enforcement officers, politicians participated in the lynching, that many white people in the community, that there is just a mass of people. And he was like, I don't think that some people really understand the large acceptance of people with lynchings and how violent it is. I think of the way that he is writing about lynchings and mob violence in the crisis, especially 1916 and beyond, is very much following on Ida B. Wells's work in writing and making it so very clear about the violence that is endured by Black people and really wanting to shed light on it. And he also made Jesse Washington's story into a pamphlet with those those photographs included, sent to a broad swath of influential Americans. This was part of this this broader NAACP media strategy that that you write about that approached hostile newspapers, ambivalent newspapers, friendly papers like famously Clark Howell at the Atlanta Constitution, progressive magazines like The Nation. So there was this this entire media ecosystem that the NAACP was very consciously and strategically attempting to to navigate. How did Du Bois and, and the NAACP use the crisis? and pamphlets and all sorts of different methods to reach different audiences to make the same case. Yes, yes. I love that you said a me- media ecosystem because um, that's exactly what they were told. They, that's exactly what they were aware of, right? That in terms of what they had was the newspaper, it was the crisis, and that went out to their to their members. And it was also available in different cities and towns and could be delivered. But they were also aware that not everyone wanted to and or did read the crisis. But but at the same time, they fully understood that even if they didn't totally center on public education, that they had to shift public opinion and they had to also provide a counter narrative to that to the narrative about black people and about racial violence that was in the mainstream press. And so it was the crisis on one hand, but they knew that they couldn't just have the crisis, that there also had to be different types of publications that were more easily digestible and that were shorter, that kind of like made a case and which was the use of pamphlets. And they used pamphlets to convey oftentimes a specific story. So there was a pamphlet around the lynching of Jesse Washington, which really told the story of the lynching of Jesse Washington, the participation of white people in Waco, Texas, as well as politicians. And it carried pictures of the gruesome spectacle at the same time, and this is this will get into something else, but I think one of their most effective uses of pamphlets is really around the collection of data around the lynchings of Black people. And so what they did is, right, They it was the NAACP, once they got word that a lynching actually occurred, they also uh, went through newspapers um, to try to figure out, to try to collect lynching data and try to corroborate those stories and talking to family members and neighbors. And what they would do is they would collect data around lynchings. They would also collect stories about who these people were 
and what happened at the lynching. Was, was this a public spectacle? How many people participated in it? Um, they would put it in a pamphlet and it would be kind of just to make clear that this is the volume. This is what is happening in this country. And why I think the kind of the pamphlets around lynchings were so useful is they went to members of Congress, especially in their fight around the anti-lynching bill. And these pamphlets that focused on lynchings were extremely helpful. And you see this even in like congressional correspondence, actually. Um, they were tremendously helpful in, in helping members, well, members of the House of Representatives make the case around the problem of lynching in this country. And so the NAACP was trying to figure out, okay, what are the sources of media that people consume in different registers that can help make the case that lynchings and, and mob violence is an important thing, issue for people in this country, especially white people, to deal with? To start with some some context, because I think a lot of people won't know this, what was the ideological, political makeup of Wilson's Democratic Party and Harding's Republican Party at the time? How did black people and how did black people relate to that whole party system? Um, in terms of the ideological composition of Woodrow Wilson's Democrat Party at the time, what's interesting is that we now know him and understand him, I think rightfully so, as a segregationist. What's interesting in his first term, however, is that he did have and, and had the support of the white South at the time, but he also made appeals to black leaders at that time, Monroe Trotter, W.B. Du Bois, the NAACP, that the Democrat Party could be a place for black people. And the NAACP at the time encouraged its members to actually vote for Woodrow Wilson. So that shocked me. <laughs> it, it is because we could because we all know what's going to happen afterwards. Right. But even then, obviously, I mean, it, it still is a bit shocking then. But yes. And then um, what obvious what happens in terms of when Woodrow Wilson wants to be reelected um, again is that black people are very disillusioned with him and they don't make that appeal to their members anymore because it is very clear what Woodrow Wilson's Democratic Party is about and stands for, especially in its relationship to black people. Now, um, coming out of that, Warren G. Harding's Republican Party, the NAACP is looking for something different. And Warren G. Harding's Republican Party at that time is opening and welcoming, um, trying to form a different coalition and the, the NAACP reaches out to Warren G. Harding and is in so many ways not perhaps embraced, but Warren G. Harding definitely welcomes the NAACP. And it seems likely that the Republican Party will treat Black people differently um, than Wilson's Democratic Party at the time. But yeah, even though Warren G. Harding was someone who was personally more open to, say, like the humanity of Black people than Wilson, who screened Birth of a Nation at the White House and resegregated or imposed segregation on the federal bureaucracy, the NAACP succeeded in getting both of them to make some sort of statement against white mob violence. What was the NAACP's approach and to what extent did they succeed? Oh, so this is for me the most. There's a lot, of, I feel like, about the early NAACP's campaign against racial violence that is confusing, Dan. But uh, if I'm honest, it is the NAACP's campaign and activism 
to try to get Woodrow Wilson to make a statement condemning lynchings that I find most confusing, but also incredibly interesting. So the NAACP in Woodrow, with Woodrow Wilson is, is committed and interested and wants to get him to make a statement condemning lynchings. And what, what is, what is, what is also going on at this time is the NAACP is right, working to change public opinion, right? Crisis, pamphlets, views public education as really important, also view, also views mass uh, protest as, as crucial to the fight to hopefully end lynchings and mob violence. And they are trying to figure out, they're looking across the political spectrum and they are looking to the three branches of government, to the executive branch, to the legislative branch, to the judicial branch. And they are trying to figure out what does the way forward look like for Black people? And so what's interesting is that they think that they can reach the president of the United States. And their idea here is that if they can get the president of the United States to make a statement condemning lynchings, right? Like the, the head person <laughs> that lynchings of Black people, that racial violence endured by Black people will end. I mean, that will end, but will be dramatically reduced. But they don't, but they don't want Wilson to do something so much about lynching they is the best that they're hoping for for the president to use his bully pulpit as kind of a propaganda masterstroke i think that there is a sense that the president of the united states is the center of public opinion in this country and if that they can shift him right if they can shift wilson or if that they can shift harding then they can shift the rest of the country. That it's in some ways a barometer of how they can convince the rest of the country to do something about the gruesome spectacle. And so, like, it is true. You're exactly right. It's not that they are, they're not advocating specific actions for Wilson to take. They're not advocating specific actions for Harding to take. They literally want Wilson and Harding. And I think that, that that's also the best that they think is possible. They also think that that is really hard to obtain is a statement from the president of the United States condemning lynching and mob violence. Things are looking pretty bleak and the horizon's pretty constricted. Yeah. And so they launched this right massive campaign to try to get Wilson to stay to say something. Um, and he ignores them like that. It, it continues to ignore them. But it's really the silent protest march that happens in 1917 when 10,000 Black people marched down Fifth Ave in New York City to the sound of muffled drums protesting the violence and the, the massacre of Black people in East St. Louis um, that then he writes his secretary, Wilson, and is like, you know what? It looks like I'm going to actually have to meet with them. See if you can set up a meeting. Um, and he meets in the White House with James Weldon Johnson and a delegation um, of, of other Black people at that time, at least written about in James Weldon Johnson's book. He says that it was a productive meeting and that it went over and Wilson was perfectly fine with the meeting going over. And then not long afterwards, he makes the statement condemning lynchings. Now, Dan, they don't stop, right? <laughs> they they continue. But for the NAACP, though, at the time, for the sec for somebody who is and will always be viewed as a segregationist president by Black people, it is a type of, for the NAACP, symbolic, important symbolic gesture for the NAACP. I'm not sure how much this actually changes. And then in terms of the Warren G. Harding, is a, uh, they meet with him while he's running for office and, and at his home in Marion, Ohio, and then um, at the White House. 
Um, and he makes a statement condemning lynchings pretty quickly. And he is horrified by what the NAACP is telling them. Now, my sense is, though, is that the NAACP's work with both President Wilson and President Harding provides a type of window to the NAACP that perhaps energy spent within <laughs> trying to get the president of the United States to make a statement conden- c- uh, condemning lynching is perhaps not the best use of their energies at the time. But yet, and this is the, kind of the last thing I'll say on this, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this early battle around the NAACP is this is an organization that is not clear because it's the early 20th century about what political or legal institution in this country might provide like a window in. Today, right, in terms of 2020, be it for better or for worse, maybe today for worse, we tend to think that like the institution that will protect racial minorities and and, and help to protect black people are courts. We can get to that later on. <laughs> but like, but that is, a, that is an established, deep, understanding that emerges, right, from the 1960s understanding of rights making in this country. But early 20th century Black struggles for rights in this country, that was not clear. I mean, what's interesting is that the courts is really the last place the NAACP goes. They're like, you know what? And that gives you a sense actually about how early Black leaders were even thinking about the courts. They were like, there's nothing that we can get through the courts. They actually thought that they could get more out of Wilson than they could out of courts. <laughs> so they go to the, they go to the executive branch first and, and then they go, uh, they go to the legislative branch, but they are trying to figure out how to make rights. Like what door can they push in to get more? Let's talk about the NAACP turning to Congress as the second branch of the federal government that it tries it successfully pushes congressional Republicans who previously took little interest to not only champion but pass an anti-lynching bill in the House. How did the NAACP succeed? Was it more just the result of leftover Northern Republican sympathies for Black people's plight in the post-Reconstruction South, or did they make something rather improbable happen? So my sense, my reading of what has happened is, is they actually made something improbable happen. There had been previous attempts to try to pass an anti-lynching bill that basically went nowhere, right? That just like it was entered into the House and nothing ever happened to the bill. But really, to me, it is I have to give credit to the passage in the passage in the House of Representatives of the anti-lynching bill in 1920, 1922 to James Weldon Johnson, Walter White and the thousands and thousands of black people who got like who were just so focused on passage of the anti-lynching bill that James Wood and Johnson comes on board in 1916, um, Walter White in 1917. And they are, you know, they want to continue the work, uh, the mass demonstrations in the streets. But they also at least kind of they're again looking at the political environment and they're thinking, you know what, let's let's get an anti-lynching bill passed. That is that's going to be kind of our, our first perhaps sign that the federal government will provide some type of guarantee, some type of protection actually to black people for, for the protection of black lives. And they just like, he, James Weldon Johnson and Walter White become like lobbyists. They are every day, all day in, this is extraordinary to me, in 
representatives, members of Congress's chambers. They are e- not emailing them. They are writing them letters. They are calling them on the, on the phone. They are telling NAACP members across the country to like engage in letter writing campaigns, right, to their member of Congress in, in support of the anti-lynching bill. There is then in terms of these big debates that happen on the House and Southern <laughs> members of the House uh, then levy these terrible racist allegations about like and like justifications for lynchings, right? That like it's only criminals that are lynched, um, that why would we ever pass an anti-lynching bill? And then you have these Northern um, representatives who use verbatim arguments given to them from the NAACP. They list out facts of lynching victims and of what has happened that is directly from, lifted from the NAACP's pamphlets at the time. And it's clear that like James Wilden Johnson supporters are just applying pressure, applying pressure. What's kind of interesting also is that at the beginning of this effort, Du Bois is kind of like, "Mm, I'm not sure, (laughs) right? I'm not sure if this is going to go the way that you guys think it's going to go. And that like when it passes the House of Representatives, he is jubilant. Like the sense, you're, especially if you read in terms of like in this like week after the passage of it in the in the House of Representatives, you know, on its way to the Senate where it obviously dies in committee. But there is this moment of hope that something improbable has actually happened, that black people have pushed white politicians to do something that they legit did not want to do. <laughs> but in 1922, did. But then, right, the dying and the kind of the killing of the bill in the Senate, in a Senate committee, is just a tremendous point of disappointment for Du Bois, for James Weldon Johnson, for the rest of the NAACP supporters. But it's also, in so many ways, a wake-up call and the development of a much deeper awareness about the structures of this political system and how very difficult it would be to pass an anti-lynching bill in a system that is one with the House of Representatives and like and that operates with with the Senate. So um, it's this it's this kind of this story where there is so much hope and jubilation um, and they do, I think, what is what is impossible and then a just tremendous letdown and disappointment. Yeah, you quote Du Bois is writing, quote, Never before in the history of the United States has the Negro population worked more wholeheartedly and efficiently toward one end. They made the Republican Party do what the Republicans did not and do not intend to do. They pushed to the forefront a demand for protective legislation instead of a demand for petty office. They refused to be beguiled by promises and handshakes. I want to ask a question about why the NAACP succeeded in the House and then a question about their failure in the Senate. First, was it the Great Migration and the resulting emergence of a Black vote in the North? Did that do a lot to empower organized Black people to make demands on national politicians in a, in a way that they had not been able to do in the past? Oh, I absolutely think that so much of what happens here is that, one, the, the electorate for a number of these representatives is changing, <laughs> right? That, that Dyer, the, the member of Congress, who proposed the bill that his district is changing, that a number of these white representatives in the House are, are, are understanding that as a result of the Great Migration, that their constituents are, are shifting 
and that they might, in terms of need to act different in Congress. What is also true is that moving from the South to the North is also in terms of and, and getting organized in different ways. Black people are also operating differently. What is what is extraordinary, one of the, kind of like my greatest like moments, at least in this book, is when Black people are actually in their rafters, when they are hearing, when they are ha- having the arguments around um, the passage of this bill, and they are p- applauding, they are booing, like Southern <laughs> representatives' arguments. But there is a greater sense for Black people of what could be possible now, as a result of the Great Migration, moving to the North, practicing and thinking about citizenship, the promises of our political and legal system in a different way with perhaps at least at least different state institutions so i do think that a lot of what your what what happens around the passage of the 1922 anti-lynching bill also relates to shifting demographics um, as a result of the great migration the bill after passing the house then failed in the senate thanks to southern democrats and conservative northern republicans what did the Senate failure reveal about American political institutions at the time and how that system fundamentally shaped the possibilities for black political power? Did did the NAACP misjudge their their chances in the Senate? And if they did, why? Because you, you note that not a single piece of civil rights legislation passed Congress from Reconstruction, from the end of Reconstruction until 1957. Yeah, so that's a massive amount of time. Um, I've been thinking a lot about their work inside of the House representatives and then this this failure and the weight of this failure on the on the leadership of the NAACP. Um, ultimately, I, I don't um, I think their vision of what was possible was bolder than the institutions at that time allowed. So, no, I don't think the NAACP misjudged its chances in the Senate. Seemingly, I think I feel like so much re- like resonates today that seemingly nothing was possible. And so, uh, you know, at least through the NAACP lens, everything was in some ways possible. Lots of my colleagues who focus on social movements kind of operate, I think, today from a political opportunity structure framework um, that says that movement actors kind of take stock of the political landscape and push when there is an opening, when something seems possible. But nothing was seemingly possible if one approached it from kind of a rational perspective of a Black person at that time in American politics. Um, So I think the real takeaway from the NAACP's work inside of Congress to gain passage of the anti-lynching bill um, is that we should dream impossible dreams and organize in ways that perhaps do not make logical sense at the time and let the chips fall where they may. The fact that the bill passed the House was a tremendous success. Um, that it died in the Senate was, as you note, and as the NAACP and Du Bois noted, was a huge disappointment. But I think it proved instructive of the lobbying prowess of James Weldon Johnson and the organizing capacities of the Black masses, especially, you know, its, its House passage. And it also went, I think, an appetite for more, um, that Black people didn't get all they wanted, but its House passage was a sign that national politicians could at least be moved, perhaps not in the Senate at that time, but ultimately... And then I think finally, I think this battle provided a sense of awareness about the possibilities and limitations of passing federal legislation where the perceived beneficiaries are Black people. Um, and I don't think that we can really understand what everybody, I think, considers to be a tr- huge success, which is the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65, without understanding the, the longer history of Black activist work inside of inside of Congress. So the NAACP has saw this great victory in a sense in their loss. Du Bois said, quote, 
Never before in the history of the United States has the Negro population worked more wholeheartedly and efficiently toward one end. They made the Republican Party do what the Republicans did not and do not intend to do. They pushed to the forefront a demand for protective legislation instead of a demand for petty office. They refused to be beguiled by promises and handshakes. The failure to stop lynching by changing public opinion or changing federal law, that all set the stage for the heart of your book, which is the NAACP's first big Supreme Court victory in Moore v. Dempsey. To set some context, explain the NAACP's turn towards litigation, the issue at hand and more, and the impact that the decision had. What's interesting about Moore v. Dempsey is that the NAACP focused on the executive branch, the legislative branch, and mass protests before really coming and focusing um, on litigation. Their understanding of litigation before Moore v. Dempsey is that it was costly uh, and that it was slow and that it was unlikely, especially in terms of a lot of the possible cases that could come out of the South around racial violence. It was unlikely that this, that, that the, that the cases would get outside of the, of the specific state. Um, the question at hand in Moore v. Dempsey was a process question. Um, and the question here was, does a, does the presence of a mob um, violate the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court, um, in a landmark decision, which is going to mark the first time that the Supreme Court is going to get involved in a state criminal court trial, deci- decides to agree with the NAACP and says that mob-dominated trials violate the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. And it's an extraordinary case in part because um, it, it set the kind of, this is the first case and it set the groundwork for what will come to be the criminal procedure revolution. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, bit.ly digjacobin, all lowercase. You write, quote, Available accounts on the NAACP and civil rights often treat it as inevitable that the NAACP pursued a litigation-centered strategy, but this was not a foregone conclusion. Right. So most standard accounts focus on really kind of 
link the NAACP and focus on the education desegregation that culminated in Brown v. Board. Um, and so many people understand that the NAACP began um, a focus, kind of a three-pronged focus on education desegregation in the early 1930s. And then that's going to culminate in the landmark Brown v. Board of Education decision. And then kind of in the larger narrative of the NAACP, um, it seems that in so many ways that this question about why did the NAACP turn to courts is not ever really asked. There's this kind of, I feel like, this hegemonic understanding today of rights making, especially civil rights making in this country, that one, big organization, NAACP, right? It's the oldest civil rights organization that's still in existence. And that education is the center um, of what it means, of what civil rights or the promises of civil rights actually mean today. I want to talk about the, the case itself. In September 1919, a group of Black sharecroppers in Phillips County, Arkansas, organized the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of, of America to fight the really violent and exploitative peonage system that they worked under. And their meeting in a church was attacked by a group of white law enforcement and landowners. And the people in the meeting shot back and a single white man ended up dead. And whites then perpetrated a total bloodbath, more than 200 murdered in three days, a massacre carried out by a mob that you write included more than 600 white men from Arkansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee who mobilized alongside militiamen to carry out the massacre. And then dozens of black men tried, found guilty, including 12 condemned to death. The Great Migration meant that many black people um, left the violence and the low wages of agriculture work behind to make new lives in the North. Um, it also meant that across the South, that black labor was scarce. And what existed in many places across the South and in Phillips County, Arkansas, was an exploitive labor situation in which the white political establishment um, cared about two main things, right? So white supremacy um, and cheap black labor. And this is what... Uh, the events of this week have actually made me go back to Rob Mickey has written a great book, Pass Out of Dixie. Um, but Rob Mickey refers to many places across the Jim Crow South as authoritarian enclaves. In Phillips County, they were, at least the white political establishment, was still dependent on cotton and the labor of Black workers. Um, but they didn't pay Black sharecroppers a fair wage. Um, there was still a system of peonage labor that was flourishing. And peonage labor has been, for some, call it debt slavery. It's basically a system where an employer traps a worker in debt. And I think in terms of the Arkansas riot, Ida B. Wells has really done, really, really written an, an excellent expose of the Arkansas massacre. She can, she disguised herself actually as a sharecropper and conducted an investigation of the violence that happened in Phillips County, Arkansas. And she, in terms of examining and really focuses on this peonage system and calls it economic slavery. And she tells the story that most of these men and their families had worked for years on shares of land um, and harvested the cotton crop. Afterwards, these Black sharecroppers were given statements for the rent of their land and supplies and how much uh, the crop produced. White landowners did not provide, however, itemized account of the debt and always maintained that the debt was not paid off and therefore they could not leave. So this was the economic situation that black sharecroppers faced 
not just in Phillips County, Arkansas, but in many places across the South. But like, so we have this system in which Black people are laboring and they cannot leave for fear of violence. And so Black sharecroppers in Phillips County, Arkansas decided to organize in a labor union and to seek the advice of a white attorney to figure out like what their rights actually were. And the issue here, right, was that this is going to violate all types of like the kind of the racial order at the time and that whites, white landowners found out about the gathering in a small black church rolled up on them and fired into the church. And then another kind of beyond the organizing of black workers, the other the other part of the racial order that was violated was that in the firing to protect their lives inside of the church, a number of black people fired back and that one white man was killed. Um, and so that set off all types of alarms in Phillips County. And so then what happened is, of course, as you noted, is that hundreds of people in terms of the white, the the state militia, um, white vigilantes, the KKK, law enforcement descended upon the African-American section of town. They uh, they looted it. They they lit fire to it. Thousands of African-Americans fled to the woods for shelter. Um, as their homes and businesses were destroyed, many more were wounded. Um, it marks today, according to the Equal Justice Initiative, the largest mass lynching of African Americans in United States history. Uh, Equal Justice Initiative has it at 237 um, Black deaths, and other accounts have it around 250, the NAACP did, and some have it as high as 800. The aftermath was terrible as well. It's not just in terms of right the, the violence about who actually was murdered, but it was hundreds of black men were round up in stockades um, and then tortured into confessions. Uh, they were stripped naked. They were whipped. They were put in electric chairs to force. It wasn't even confessions. It was just to force um, them to say what the what the people delivering um, this type of torture wanted them to actually say. And then just the last thing to note about um, the tensions, the racial tensions at that time, is that in Phillips County, Phillips County was majority Black. It was 75% Black, uh, roughly 75% Black, and roughly 25% White. To, to ask a classic question as a follow-up, what was the relationship between white supremacy and the economic system in a place like Phillips County? The two things that you said were so critically important to the white establishment. To cite Barbara Fields in in posing the question, she, of course, famously wrote, probably a majority of American historians think of slavery in the United States as primarily a system of race relations, as though the chief business of slavery were the production of white supremacy rather than the, the production of cotton, sugar, rice, and tobacco. Yeah, I mean, so from my perspective, especially here, I'm going to lean heavily, heavily um, on Ida B. Wells' Arkansas 1919 pamphlet here, um, because it's really her, I think, that, that she makes the strong case. Walter White does as well, but it's really Ida B. Wells who makes the strong case um, about how intertwined white supremacy is with economic exploitation. That white supremacy and the kind of the, the Jim Crow racism in Phillips County, Arkansas, exist in order, right, in order to protect a type of economic system um, or, as she says, economic slavery, that the only way that they can maintain a system of economic slavery where they extract all of this labor from black sharecroppers at that time and keep them like in a situation of servitude 
is through white supremacy. And it's not just in terms of like white supremacy. It's also, I think a lot, oftentimes when people talk about white supremacy, they, they disassociate white supremacy with violence. Um, and so it is violent white supremacy and it's the use of violence that, that also, that maintains a type of economic order and a black majority county in which whites maintain and continue to hold on through violence, um, the majority of the wealth. The fake white establishment story propagated by the state's leading newspaper and then remarkably by newspapers all over the place was that the Black Sharecroppers organization in Phillips County had a plot to kill white planters, that that's what they were doing in the church. How is it that such a one-sided racist massacre gets framed as a defensive action of a besieged white innocent population? Oh my God, it's extraordinary, right? <laughs> like that, that that they actually they called in hundreds, right, of people across the state of Arkansas to come to maintain a, a type of racial order to prevent black union organizing, and then stepped into owned and created a new narrative in which they were the aggrieved <laughs> population, right? It wasn't the 237 or 250 Black people who were murdered. It wasn't the hundreds of people who were tortured. It was them, right? And so they create this narrative and that then gets picked up by the LA Times and the New York Times. But What's interesting there, and it's clear, is that they are aware of the power and importance of public opinion. And so they engaged in in an elaborate cover-up in which they just leaned into storytelling and issued a fabricated report. And in this report, they relied, right? They they kind of like leaned into also racial stereotypes that many people across the South and across the North kind of sympathize with, right? And so they say this, and there's a number of quotes throughout the archives that always like just burn in my mind. And I, I know they say the present trouble with the Negroes in Phillips County is not a race riot. It's a deliberately planned insurrection um, against the whites, right? And this, this is going to play into like racial fears about Black criminality, about that like in terms of that Black people were coming for white people, um, and this is this is, again, the headline part of the headline that you see in, in places like The New York Times and The L.A. Times at, at, uh, a few days afterwards. What's also crucial here is the importance of this narrative to protect what they are doing. And it's clear. I mean, we know the story now later on, but I also wonder about how many incidents, incidences like this occurred where the NAACP did not come in, where Ida B. Wells did not come in. Right. Because it's 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 clear also and about how normal this is for the white political establishment at the time. The NAACP's big propaganda effort emphasized, you write, that, quote, the PFHUA was not formed to murder white planters, but to hire a lawyer to work on behalf of settlements for African-American sharecroppers who had been cheated out of their wages by greedy white landowners who were trying to replicate slavery in the post-emancipation South. The NAACP believed that, quote, most Americans would be aghast at the circumstances surrounding the case because it involved the twin evils of racial violence and labor exploitation. Essentially, the NAACP's theme was economic exploitation and the devastating repercussions of trying to achieve justice. This is really important, I think. Why did the NAACP believe that it was essential for strategic communications purposes to highlight 
the labor rights dimension of their racial justice struggle. Yes, yes. Um, so the NAACP, obviously in a different register, is also keenly aware of the narrative power here. Um, so Walter White, it's to me, it's one of these individuals in, in Black history that's fascinating, um, in part because he's basically second in charge at the NAACP. He's somebody, um, like in the his, in, in Black history, who we could say passes. He has blonde, blonde hair and blue eyes. And in terms of many people like view him as some as a white man. Um, but he uses um, his ability to pass to conduct lynching investigations all across the South, specifically in Phillips County. The NAACP gets word of the violence. Walter White then decides to go down to Phillips County and meets with <laughs> members of the white political establishment, talks to white people. And, you know, they just tell him exactly what it is, as if he is a white man, about what happened. Right. They don't tell him the fake story that got out. They tell him the story from their perspective. Um, and then he leaves. Um, he gets word because the black people in town know um, who he is. And once word gets out that there is a possible kind of northern agitator, um, they start to look for him and he gets on a train and leaves. Anyways, he gets back. Once word gets out that there's a possible black northern agitator passing as white. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and then he gets on the train um, and actually the train conductor asked him, he's like, where are you going? And he's like, oh, I have to get I have to get back home. And the train conductor responds, oh, that's too bad. There's a white N word in town. And then Walter White asks him, what are they going to do when they find him? And then the train conductor responds, he's not going to be white anymore after they get through with him. And Walter White writes in his autobiography that it, it is the most frightening train ride of his career. But he gets back um, north and he writes up a, a, a new narrative and it gets published in many different um, outlets, including The Nation. And this focus on in terms of the reframing of the violence as not something that Black people are responsible for, but connected to white greed, connected to a, a labor struggle, is really important at that time for the NAACP to make clear. Um, and, and it's in this also is going to one of the figures that I actually don't talk enough about in that chapter is is the work of Du Bois at this time. That part of what he is getting more focused on in the teens and then what he focuses a lot more on in the 20s is a focus on black sharecroppers and on labor as being along with the fight around mob violence and lynchings and the right around for black people to live that he believes that like what the NAACP and what black struggles really need to focus on is the labor struggle is black labor and like the fight for black workers and fair wages. And it seems that especially in 1919, as this country across the South and obviously in the North is thinking about the role of the worker, um, that that's something at least that many people can relate to and for some can sympathize with. And so it's a way at least for Walter White Du Bois and the rest of the NAACP's leadership to think about kind of broadening the kind of the appeal of the struggle um, and to make it clear that this is not just a black issue, right? That like this focus around economic exploitation is a larger issue that people can kind of plug into more. What also occurs and what Du Bois is wonderfully vocal on is that you can't focus on labor and workers' rights and not focus on race. It just doesn't work, right? <laughs> like, and so both movements, right? One that focuses on racial justice needs a focus, must have a focus on labor and economic rights, 
and and the work around that focuses that is obviously a part of the labor movement of that time period of the early 20th century um, and workers' rights must also have a focus on race. And that if that if they don't, if the racial justice movement doesn't, if the economic justice movement doesn't, then there's going to be something that's going to be weakened um, about both movements. And that the way to actually strengthen both movements um, is actually to include um, kind of a more nuanced analysis. Moving on to the trial, which was entirely surreal, a, a group of white elites formed something called the Committee of Seven, authorized by the governor to investigate The committee then undertook an inquisition that demanded confessions, and when they weren't forthcoming, they sent detainees to a torture room to be brutalized until they said what was expected, which then produced the evidence that was provided to the grand and petite juries, which issued indictments, and critically, a lynch mob was only dispersed when it was promised that the courts would put the black people to death themselves, that the lynch mob wasn't necessary, and then the juries convicted in under an hour. Was this just the ordinary way that white establishment courts function for poor black people in the South? Yes. I mean, I can answer that question in one word. Yes. But I'll answer, but I'll, I'll, I'm going to use some more words. I think what's extraordinary about this is about how how terrible the facts are, how blatantly obvious that justice was not delivered, that this was a, a, a sham Jim Crow court trial, right? That you could round up people, that you could torture them to make statements that were untrue, that you could have a mob that could that could tell the jury, you need to do this, otherwise we're going to lynch you, and then that you could have trials that are less than sometimes 10 minutes. And this happened all across the South. And what's interesting is that, like, even with how terrible, especially in 2020, when, you, when we read <laughs> the, the initial trial that, that occurred in Phillips County, Arkansas, it boggles the mind that something like this could have been done through the legal system. But it also speaks to the amount of power that the white political establishment had, that they like, they didn't even think twice about everything that you just stated that they did. They didn't even think twice. That is just how it was done. And the surprise, obviously, that happens later on when they're like, wait a minute, we can't do all of that. (laughs) It was a really long and drawn out court fight against so many odds one adverse ruling followed by another, but the case ultimately made its way to the Supreme Court, which ruled 6-2 to two in the NAACP's favor in an opinion written by Oliver Wendell Holmes and joined by Justice and former President William Howard Taft. And it ultimately led to all the Arkansas prisoners being freed and, you write, brought, quote, the wall of precedent insulating state criminal court proceedings crashing down. How did the NAACP win? And did it seem likely that they would win at the onset of the case? So I don't think that this is the type of Supreme Court case where we can look at the NAACP's litigation around this and say, oh, this is a perfect case where we can draw lessons on how to successfully litigate a Jim Crow criminal court case. It's clear that part of the success of Moore v. Dempsey is due to the expertise of the Black attorney, C.P.O. Jones, as well as the white attorney, Moorfield Story, as well as Black organizing on the ground at that time in Phillips County and keeping the Black attorney safe. 
But it's also that there were a number of kind of chance encounters which occurred through the development of the court case, right? So, I mean, the initial incident occurred in 1919, but it wasn't until 1923 where the Supreme Court heard this case and then in, in January of 1923 and then decided this case in February of 1953. And so there's this kind of like long route through the legal process that this case takes. And I do want to say that also one of the things for me that was that I found really interesting about this case was that the way that many people talk about this case initially and why there wasn't that much focus is that the way that legal scholars have often focused on this case and is that they have said that the facts of this case were just so gruesome, they were so terrible, that the court had no choice but to, but to decide this case in this manner, which is like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is 1923, and there's extreme racial violence, right? The height of lynching, uh, it's kind of, be the, kind of the rebirth of the KKK. It seemed incredulous to me that the Supreme Court was like, you know what, plucked this case out of nowhere and was like, we're going to decide this case in, in, like in this manner. As though it were entirely out of the ordinary, such violence. I mean, this is one of the issues here that I think is so interesting, especially this is going to take me down another quick tangent so you can bring me back here. But I've been thinking especially a lot about why more people don't don't know about this case. And I think a lot about how history is written by the powerful uh, by white people and and oftentimes by men. Um, and I also think a lot about the racial understanding or the orientation of people who have written about violent periods of racial unrest and how these histories have calcified over time and, are, and inform our understandings of the past. And so this is a roundabout way of saying that I think the NAACP's role in producing Morby Dempsey has been in so many ways erased because past historians have looked at the facts of this case, right, and said that they're so terrible and the Supreme Court had no choice but to decide this case in this manner. But I think this past understanding misunderstands Black protests and how deeply racial violence was institutionalized in the legal structures in our society, right? It's this kind of, this these things were so bad. It's a type of kind of like this deep liberal understanding that like, if we peel, if we open up the hood, it's like, no, that the, situations like this happen all of the time. And as though there are certain types of guardrails that this country oh my is gosh. operating within. <laughs> right, right. Like when things get so bad, don't worry. Don't worry, Black people. <laughs> like these institutions will guard against the worst, right? And I'm saying this one week out of the election, <laughs> right? Where like, I think that is ridiculous, right? But there is like, I think a belief that we're seeing so many, especially in terms of people who consider themselves like political moderates, um, who really do believe that there are terrible racist people in this country, but that our institutions, when push comes to shove, like will protect the least of these. And that's not true, <laughs> right? The story of Morvie Dempsey, of how that case even like is lit, one, gets representation, is even uh, appealed, <laughs> makes its way to the Supreme Court, it's because Black people, through the NAACP, apply pressure, use scarce financial resources <laughs> um, behind this case, and believed against hope, believed against what was possible at the time that the Supreme Court would, would hear this case and decide in their favor. That's how change happens, by people on the ground making the impossible happen. What was the long-term impact of the precedents set in this case? Yeah, so the long-term precedents, I think, on two uh, uh, of the precedents set in this case, um, for me at least, break two ways. One, the importance of this case for the 
the rest of what ha- many people have termed as the criminal procedure revolution. And so this is going to be, Moore v. Dempsey is going to be the first big case that is going to uh, break a hold, which in term before this case, federal courts did not get involved in state criminal court trials. So Alabama conducted different uh, criminal trials than Texas, than New York, than Pennsylvania. Different states had radically different procedures for the way that they conducted criminal court trials. And with Moore v. Dempsey, the Supreme Court comes in and says very, very clearly that mob-dominated trials violate the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, right? And so that, at least in terms of, and it seems like for some, like a small one in the sense of like, okay, Megan, so we don't have, so we can't have a mob in a courtroom. Okay. But you could still have a racist prosecutor, judge, and jur- an all-white jury. Yeah, exactly, right? And you could still torture criminal defendants, right? Like, you could still do so many things. But this was, in terms of the way that the law works, that, that we now have precedent, that federal courts can get involved in state criminal court proceedings. And so that was important. And what happens after Moore v. Dempsey is that there are a number of different cases. I think many people, especially listening to this podcast, might be familiar with the, with the Scottsboro cases. There's other cases, Brown v. Mississippi, which is around like, hey, you can't torture defendants, <laughs> right, into confessions. Like, hey, we can't have those anymore. And then obviously um, they gained spe- kind of the criminal procedure revolution, gained speed in- through the 30s and the 40s. And then in-, in the 60s, that's when I think most people focus on the criminal procedure revolution. We get Miranda, Gideon, all these different decisions from the court that focus on the protection of individual defendant rights. And so th- kind of the importance for Morvey Dempsey, at least in the area of criminal procedure, of kind of setting, of like getting the ball rolling um, on that. What's interesting, and this is perhaps a discussion for another time, but what's interesting to me about the court's decision in Morvey Dempsey, as well as the long criminal procedure revolution, is that Morvey Dempsey is a case around racial violence that goes kind in so many ways at the heart of the pillars of economic injustice and white supremacy. Um, And it's a case that is delivered by the court in 1923, well before uh, the Brown v. Board decision in 1954. Now, the other in terms of, for me, why this case, what this case establishes and why that's important is for the NAACP as an organization itself in terms of informing the organization about how to fight for Black people in our political and legal institutions. It's clear that what the NAACP has been doing <laughs> since its inception in 1909 is trying to figure out what institution can they remake, <laughs> right? There's mass protest, yes, and they've always believed that that's important, but it's like, all right, executive branch, ah, Harding, Wilson, doesn't seem to like make that much of a difference. And then in Congress, that was important that it passed the House of Representatives, the anti-lynching bill, but that it died in committee in the Senate. And then in the Supreme Court, while this was like a small win, it was also significant for an organization that for two decades had been trying to figure out how do we like kind of crack the stranglehold that these political and legal institutions have over us? Can we get a win in in the way that they understand wins? And then after 1923, it's clear that the NAACP shifts a lot of its energy and resources to focus on litigation. Um, And so it informs the NAACP about kind of like how to wage um, a struggle against racial violence in American society. 
given today's left-wing criticism of the U.S. Constitution and rights-based politics and very much of the Supreme Court, including the fact that the judiciary has been a key accomplice to mass incarceration rather than any sort of a check on it, are there in retrospect limits or problems with this rights-based litigation strategy that defined the NAACP at what limits and problems avoidable or otherwise? Uh, so this is a question that I've been thinking a lot about since I've written since I've written this book. Morvey Dempsey is a process win. It's not a justice win. <laughs> but I'm not sure if justice is ever possible through courts. The best way to view courts and how the NAACP uh, viewed them, and I think how many activists today view them, is that they can be leveraged inside of broader fights for justice today. And I can say more on this, but ultimately, I think this move in terms of kind of a focus on individual rights and a focus to expand court power uh, to protect individual defendants' rights led to the tremendous growth or helped to uh, kind of pave the way to a tremendous growth of court power. And where the court is seen at the beginning of the 20th century as the institutional defender of minority rights, for some, not as all, and or perhaps can be leveraged because the NAACP does believe, especially after 1923, uh, that the court can be leveraged as a defender of minority rights. It's clear that kind of by the end of the 20th century, right, 70s, 80s, 90s, goodness, it's clear that the courts are in so many ways enemies. And that like the thing that I think haunts many individuals who perhaps focused on kind of a right-centered strategy, especially a rights court-centered strategy is the rise of mass and or hyper-incarceration. And so do I think that could have been prevented, though? I think maybe. I don't think that the work of the NAACP that produced Morvey Dempsey in 1923 and a number of the other rights uh, the, and a number of the other victories that focused on the protection of defendants' rights, that it was inevitable that it would have led to kind of the development of court power and, and the rise of mass incarceration. I think a lot about the narrowing of strategies, actually, and how for at least this early NAACP, it was courts and it was mass protest. And how seemingly what happens in the mid 20th century is a narrowing of strategies and a focus on courts as saviors to racialized minorities. We get to mass incarceration, not just through kind of a liberal law and order and rights, um, kind of in a, in a rights-based strategy, but also through a larger ecosystem that, that narrowed the imagination of Black struggle. And I wonder that, like, if the imagination of Black struggle didn't narrow as much as it did in the mid-20th century, if courts could have been pressured to act differently. I'm not sure, but sometimes I wonder. In a separate article that you wrote after your book, you uncover a really important fact that was lost to history, that the NAACP did not take on educational desegregation in the whole litigation campaign that led up to Brown v. Board so much because it wanted to, but really rather because of serious financial pressure from its only major funder, a left foundation known as the Garland Fund, run almost entirely by white people. You discovered that, the, as your book would suggest, the priority for the NAACP was combating violence against black people. How did white funders end up remaking NAACP priorities? And how does your discovery force us to rethink the entire history of the civil rights movement? Yeah, so I've, I wrote this book and, the, and uh, you know, I, I gave talks on this book 
And the question that I received the most was, all right, Megan, we believe your account of the NAACP's campaign against racial violence in the first quarter of the 20th century. We did not know that before, but how we understand the NAACP and how most people understand the NAACP as an organization is, is an organization that focuses on segregated education. Like that is tends to be kind of the identity, at least kind of the history of the organization. And so they were like, so the question always was, what changed? And I didn't have a good answer for about two years. Um, and because I didn't have a good answer, I went back to the archives. And what I realized um, was another story, which is why I wrote this kind of this article, which probably should have been an epilogue to my book, but I wanted to spend some more time on it. And so what I found when I went back into the archives to try to figure out if there was so much energy on racial violence, then why did the shift why was there a shift to education? And I found there's this funder for those of us who focus on legal history and the development of Brown v. Board of Education. We all know, and it's kind of the established history, is that there is a funder, the Garland Fund, which is this, uh, uh, it's a radical group of kind of the leftiest white people of the time. And the Garland Fund is going to provide a little bit of funding for the anti-lynching bill uh, media campaign. And so I found a, kind of a, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, there goes the Garland Fund, like in 19, in 1921. But for those of us who are legal historians, we know that the Garland Fund bankrolled the entire NAACP and then NAACP LDF litigation effort that led to Brown v. Board. The reason why that we're, that in terms of that we have a, a two, essentially a two decade education desegregation litigation campaign is because of the support of a white funder. And always how that story is told, at least kind of like retold, is that the NAACP was an organization that was very concerned about education desegregation. And there was this funder who was also equally concerned about education desegregation, right? The agendas of both organizations overlapped. And then they produced one of the most landmark decisions ever in civil rights history. It's a nice narrative, okay? Except it's not fully true. Um, what I realized by doing um, archival research is that the end of what the more, the more truer story that happens is that the Garland Fund is aware of the NAACP's work, is really just so impressed by the NAACP's win in Moore v. Dempsey and is excited. There's this one quote about how um, they refer to the ACLU as a legal organization, but as like a bunch of wastrels. Wastrels is a quote uh, from the Garland Fund in comparison to the NAACP because they're like, the NAACP does so much with so little. This is like, a, like kind of like the key Black organization to pay attention to. The end up, I mean, the Garland Fund, however, um, in terms of a number of its early grants, provides grants and does not get the results that they want from their grantees. The radical labor organizations are not producing the type of changes that they want at the speed that they want. So they decide to pull back in and then to propose new areas for the for the Garland Fund to go after. And one of the members of the board at the Garland Fund is interested in a kind of a campaign that like a campaign that could really make a splash, make a difference could be perhaps be focused on education desegregation, approaches the NAACP. James Weldon Johnson and Walter White, now this is about like 1927, 1928, 1929. 
James Wilden Johnson and Walter White are like, hey, we believe education is crucially important to Black people. Absolutely. But we are, you know, our focus right now is, is really on racial violence. Like, can we shift this? Can we move these funds to a focus on racial violence? And the Garland Fund isn't ever like, no, we cannot focus on this. But they make it clear that this money needs to go to a campaign that is centered on education desegregation. And through over about three to four years of basically negotiations and bargaining, this proposed big $100,000 grant gets um, gets whittled down to about 30000 and with a sole focus on education desegregation. And this then begins the NAACP's turn, as I narrated. Um, some don't fully disagree with me, but as I narrated, as a turn to education. And in my perspective, it's not a complete turn away from violence, but a significant turn away from in terms of energies and financial resources committed to the fight around um, racial violence. And it's not that everything else wasn't important. It's just that everything else depended on the securing that Black people could actually live. How have prior histories of the civil rights era treated the role of, of funders and what changes when we consider not only the full role of funders, but their power. If I look at kind of the landscape of civil rights history, there isn't a lot on the role of funders. I think that is something I'm going to jump to today and then I'm going to jump back. That is something today in terms of looking at the Black Lives Matter protests or the movement for Black lives that I find actually so reassuring that even in their platform, they are cognizant of the role of funders, (laughs) of how co-optation can actually occur about setting very clear boundaries with funders. Um, But I think that comes as a result of some of the history that comes out of the civil rights movement in terms of oftentimes, like we look to, we look to different organizations and we're like, oh, that organization was a short-lived organization. That organization didn't achieve all that it wanted to achieve. Um, Some of the reason why organizations fail and why others succeed is sometimes connected to also funding. And that, like, without, I think, an attention on the role of funders, I think we miss a lot of what happened, not just in the 50s and the 60s, but we also miss a lot on the structure and the nature of movement organizing in the early 20th century. Just like how the power to invest in, you know, a capitalist economy or any economy, I guess, sets the overall direction for the the economy. Funding is is where strategic power lies unless it's checked. Yes, unless it's checked. And it's like only I feel like in this moment, Dan, in this moment, 2020, not even in terms of earlier iterations of the Black Lives Matter movement in, let's say, 2017, 2015, where like funders now are better, not best, are better at being like, you know what, we've exerted a lot of power and we need to hold, we need to pull back. So one of the things that I sometimes like to talk about, <laughs> perhaps I shouldn't, but I like to talk about um, in terms of the role of funders is I think a lot about, about the defund movement and the abolition movement. Um, and one of the things that I've been screaming about on social media this year is who are the funders that have been funding this? We have, no- we have known that many funders have been concerned about mass incarceration. Right. We've seen this over the last decade. Oh, my goodness. Right. On the left and the right. <laughs> right. From Koch brothers to Ford. Right. These big organizations are concerned about mass incarceration and they have funded research. These organize both organizations on the left and the right have funded research. 
They have funded organizations. They have funded organizations that has led to a moderation of the agenda that has tried to, in terms of block more radical visions, that has tried to undermine the work of organizations like Critical Resistance that have been long in the struggle and then have been long focused on mass and hyper-incarceration. They have funded ways that have actually led to a, a kind of a larger uh, criminal punishment system. So this is kind of a, a ways to say that like funders really matter um, and they like they matter to the way that we even think about movements today. I wanted to ask a counterfactual about the Garland Fund's influence on the NAACP. How might a civil rights movement that had continued to prioritize the fight against racist violence have changed the movement and this country's history? So I'm not sure. If I'm honest, I'm not sure. Um, Fair. Yeah. What I can say, sometimes when I presented this paper, Dan, about the Garland Fund, people are like, well, Megan, what did you expect? Did you actually think that there could be a, a, a large scale movement that could protect black lives? That seems so unbelievable. And I so I always pause people because that is obviously a perspective that has the understanding of what has happened since, right? That we have a history now of civil rights that, and there's, and there's specific narratives that come out of that. But what is so exciting to me about this earlier period is again, that everything is possible. And for the NAACP, what I think is so important and the reason why like I hammer in on this, on, on the first quarter of the 20th century in terms of the black, the NAACP's imagination um is that if if we believe that Black self-determination is possible, and I hope that we are all people that believe that, it is clear that for the NAACP that this was the way, this was the way forward, a, a focus on the protection of Black lives around lynching and mob violence. That in terms of, at least for them, they had, Dan, they had a, a, a win in the House of Representatives. There was mass protests across the country they got two presidents, one who was clearly racist, to make statements condemning lynching, and they had the small but yet important Supreme Court win, all by 1923. They had almost zero when it came when it comes to education, very little when it came to voting. From the perspective of Black people in the 1920s, the fight for civil rights was going to happen through racial violence. That was going to be the center of the fight, right? And I often, in terms of, and instead, obviously, that changed. And it wasn't that the NAACP was like, oh, you know what? Racial violence is not important anymore. But what was clear is that kind of the focus on education and voting in the in the mid-20th century, then it became kind of, and the sundering of a focus on racial violence and on economic justice, many Black people believe that, like, once we secured education and voting, that then a focus, right, on protection of Black lives and economic justice would, would come afterwards. What we have seen is that did not happen. What I, what I often think about is this counterfactual, actually. I spend perhaps too much time <laughs> thinking about this counterfactual, is that if there was, if the movement, if the NAACP continued to focus on this movement as they wanted to, right, and if we trust, if we trust Black people in terms of their imaginations about what freedom looked like and about how to secure it, and I hope that we do, then like that was the way. And at least to me, it seems that like kind of the echoes of the importance of racial violence to every other right that we have is so crucial that like I, I wonder 
is the fight around voting and education could have come through a fight that focused on the protection of Black lives first and not second and not third and not submerged. But that's kind of where I stand um, on that on that question. Megan Ming Francis, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. It's been good to be here. Megan Ming Francis is a professor in the departments of political science and law, societies and justice at the University of Washington and the author of Civil Rights in the Making of the Modern American State. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting combat or death, bloody struggle or extinction, it is thus that the question is inexorably put. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. Same on Facebook. Please also find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or wherever, please also take a quick moment to rate and review us. Those reviews, if they're positive, help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling your friends, comrades, family members why you love the show and why they should listen. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.